You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast exploring solutions for sustainability and equity in water. I'm the host, Travis Luke. This episode is part of a series, The PFAS Puzzle, Lessons from a Contaminated Cape Fear. The forever chemicals were dumped in the North Carolina River for nearly 40 years before being discovered. The series explores how a community responds when it is the epicenter of PFAS pollution. This episode is about regulations. One of the big questions about PFAS is how industrial facilities have been able to discharge the chemicals and whether regulations like the Clean Water Act are being properly utilized. Those regulatory issues and the situation for the Cape Fear River are discussed in this episode with Elizabeth Beiser, Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality, and Jeff Gisler, Program Director at the Southern Environmental Law Center. They talk about the requirements for compliance with a consent order and a groundbreaking permit for a facility on the Cape Fear. Jeff summarizes the variety of PFAS litigation around the country and direction of the legal fight, while Elizabeth explains the response and approach by state regulators. Before starting the conversation, I want to mention that Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet. This series is made possible by the support of Black & Veatch, Ultra, and PFAScoms.com. I will take a few minutes to talk about their expertise on PFAS and then start the conversation. This episode is sponsored by Ultra. When it comes to PFAS, there are hundreds to thousands of contaminated sites across the US and Canada. Military bases, airports, landfills, and industrial facilities are all known locations where the risk of having PFAS is very high. Ultra experts have been performing risk assessments and implementing cleanup solutions for PFAS for nearly 40 years building a reputation as innovators along the way. The Ultra team is helping pave the way for better outcomes with proven innovations like its patented PFAS technology and first-of-its-kind continuous process. This drive for innovation, combined with its comprehensive suite of solutions and local regulatory knowledge, means customers have the right team to combat their PFAS challenges. Visit logistech.com forward slash PFAS hyphen solutions. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. This episode is sponsored by Black & Veatch. Black & Veatch is proud to provide the planning, design, and construction services for Cape Fear Public Utility Authority's new granular activated carbon facility that successfully removes PFAS from the Wilmington community's drinking water. Black & Veatch helps organizations across the country and around the world to address their PFAS challenges providing end-to-end -end consulting, engineering, and construction services to meet each community's unique needs. From applied research to executed projects, Black & Veatch is at the forefront of innovative and effective PFAS treatment solutions, trusted by key trade and research organizations, such as the American Water Works Association, the Water Environment Federation, and the Society of American Military Engineers, to mitigate the impacts of PFAS in our environment, critical infrastructure, and communities. To learn more, visit bv.com forward slash PFAS. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. This episode is sponsored by PFAScoms.com. 
PFAS is shaking public confidence in our nation's drinking water. And now that EPA is requiring utilities to test for PFAS, newsmaking findings are guaranteed. Your utility must become and stay the trusted go-to source for information about PFAS in your community. PFASCOMS.com is here to help. Their communication experts protect you from threats to your reputation when discoveries are made. PFASCOMS.com provides proactive public information plans as well as 24-7 emergency support. Visit PFASCOMS.com today to set up your free initial consultation. That's PFASCOMS.com. You're in the water loop. One of the things I'm really curious about is in the specific case of the Kimorris facility in Fayetteville, North Carolina, on the Cape Fear River, but then from a national perspective, how these facilities have been able to discharge PFAS, uh, you know, in the case of Kimorris for 37 years until it became public, how are they able to do this and be allowed to do this? So I guess I'll start with the, the last question <laughs> first, and that's whether they were allowed to do this at all, ever. And the answer is no, and that hasn't been consistently enforced. Mm. So the way that the Clean Water Act works is unless you are given specific permission to put something in a stream or river, you're not allowed to. So Kim Morris, for decades, they never told anybody what they were doing. The way the law works is that means their, their discharges were illegal. And that's ultimately what the state said. It's what we said in our litigation. And it's what led to the cleanup that we've seen implemented over the last five years is that fundamental principle that unless you're allowed to put something in our streams and rivers, it's illegal mm. to do so. And that's not being implemented consistently enough. You know, when we think about the Clean Water Act, the goal of the Clean Water Act is not to regulate levels of pollution in rivers. It's to eliminate it entirely. The goal was to eliminate all pollution by 1985. Mm. And so the problem is not with the law, it's with the way it's been enforced. And for too many years, the, the, the approach that state agencies have been taking, the approach that polluters have been taking is, I'm gonna dump it until someone tells me no. Mm. I was gonna say, that, so they, they know what the Clean Water Act says and what they're supposed to do, but they also know that it's not being enforced. And so therefore, they just go ahead and dump. And why are states, federal government, not implementing the Clean Water Act properly then? What's, why, why are they not enforcing that? Well, when you think about it, they get a lot of pressure from folks who are regulated to, to not. And so I mean, what we've seen over the last 10 years in North Carolina is that every single budget, the Department of Environmental Quality's budget has been cut. And so when you beat down the agencies, when you strip them of their staff, when you take away their their ability to to enforce the law, it has the intended effect, and, and that means there are fewer people watching. There are fewer fewer staff members able to ask questions. You, you get less information coming in. Hmm. In general, I think the state and, and the federal government have just lost focus on what we're trying to achieve here. In so many states now, the success is defined by how many permits do you put out, how many permits do you approve in a year. The real goal of the Clean Water Act is to make it so that we don't have any permits being approved 
at all. Yeah, 50 years after the Clean Water Act now, I think that's really forgotten, is that the idea was like zero discharge, right, right. By, the, by the mid 80s. Right. So this situation unfolds in, in the Cape Fear region. It's discovered that mm -hmm. there's Gen X and other PFAS in the river, that it's come from this Camores facility, formerly a DuPont facility. Um, could you talk about how all, of, all the regulatory and legal action kind of unfolded? It's a long, twisting journey over the past six years. But, but what happened to, to address this from, from a legal and regulatory perspective? Yeah, so I think there were, the, I'll, I'll describe it in a couple of kind of buckets, categories sure. of, of litigation. Um, the first set of litigation I'll describe, because I won't go into it in too much detail, is that brought by the utilities downstream. So utilities that had this, these chemicals coming into their system, they have sued to, to regroup those, uh, recoup those expenses, and that litigation's ongoing. Mm. There were private landowners, private property owners, who sued the company as part of a class action case. Our litigation was focused on how do you clean up the site? How do we stop the pollution from going into the river? So we sued under the Clean Water Act, we sued under the Toxic Substances Control Act, and through that litigation we entered into a settlement with the company and with the state of North Carolina, whom we had also sued for not moving quickly enough on the cleanup. We entered into a three-way consent order that required the company to clean up its air pollution, its groundwater pollution, its, its surface runoff, and really essentially put a filter over the facility. And what we've seen is that over, over the last several years, as those controls have been implemented, that the level of PFAS in the river has gone down significantly. Hmm. Could you talk just about the status of that, what's happening at that facility uh, in terms of compliance, and, and then how the state monitors uh, that, that everything's being done there? Sure. So um, you reference a consent order. It's a lengthy document. It goes through all the different steps that Comoros had to take. So in 2017, we stopped the process discharge, process wastewater, which is basically any kind of water coming from their industrial processes that was being discharged into the Cape Fear River. As of 2017, that stopped. So that doesn't, that no longer takes place. Um, in terms of groundwater, we know that the groundwater at that site is heavily contaminated. And that was one of the largest contributors to PFAS loading into the Cape Fear River. Yeah. And so the consent order um, uh, provided for a very large, unprecedented of its type barrier wall system with the groundwater extraction wells behind it. And so DEQ issued an NP NPDES permit for that groundwater extraction system a few months ago. Um, and that has now survived challenge and we are, um, that has been operational. The groundwater extraction system started operation in February of this year. Um, so we're very encouraged by that. That um, permit requires a 99.97% reduction in the PFAS uh, loading. So what you're doing is you're taking that groundwater, putting it through granular activated carbon systems before it's discharged back into the Cape Fear River. You know, before that, it was just going unimpeded. So it was all that contamination was going straight into that. So the fact that we are removing almost all, you know, through that, that system, you know, we've had them put that system in place so that that um, existing source gets uh, cleaned up before it, get, it makes it to downstream communities is very important. That barrier wall was complete this weekend. Um, so that is an exciting next step. 
Um, that's piece of it. The other part of it would be air pollution. I was, you know, looking at, uh, so we required a thermal oxidizer mm -hmm. to be put on, on the um, smokestack there. And so that's getting at that pollution I mentioned earlier that's affected residents 18 miles and counting upwind of the facility. Mm -hmm. So we continue to monitor. They have permits. Um, of course, and um, just like with any type of um, facility that ha has permits, but also for something of this magnitude, we are we are monitoring that. There's reporting requirements in place, um, and we and we follow that consent order. The, <clears throat> the permit has gotten a lot of positive reaction from uh, a lot of different stakeholders, and saying this is really one of the best, strongest permits there is in the nation. Period for a facility for PFAS. How do you feel when you hear that type of feedback out there from people? Feel proud of our team because we were able to, and this is another area where we're having to look, you know, there's not 50 years of data, right. but we do have data. And that's one area where I think our experience with dealing with this issue for as, as long as we have really comes into play, yeah. um, that we're able to evaluate and make sure that we are living up to our regulatory obligations um, to make sure that we're being protective of public health and the environment. Mm. Um, and, yeah, people are thinking this, this permit needs to be used in other places, other states, take this and apply it elsewhere. So it's really important about that is that facility to me, is it shows the promise of the existing regulatory structure. Because with no new laws, no new regulations, DEQ issued a permit for that facility that requires the company to take PFAS levels from the hundreds of thousands of parts per trillion down to essentially non-detect. Mm. So we're going from extraordinarily high levels of these chemicals. And, you know, these chemicals are dangerous in the four parts per trillion range, even less than that. So when we're thinking hundreds of thousands of parts per trillion, this is extremely dangerous water. They're taking that down to levels where it's not detectable leaving the facility. And that's all done under existing law. It can be done across the country at, at sites where they're treating contaminated wastewater. And so that permit, from what I've seen, it's the strongest permit issued to any facility anywhere in the country and really should be the model for how we control PFAS going forward. Hmm. Any other aspects of ongoing litigation involving, you know, the Camores facility, the Cape Fear River, some of the things you mentioned, you know, updates on those, where those things are headed? So right now there's a lot of litigation <laughs> in the PFAS world. Yeah. Uh, so there, the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority has a couple of cases against Kim Moore's. The, uh, that, the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority in Brunswick County, their case, I think it's set for trial in the next year or so against Kim Moore's, trying to recoup their costs. Uh, so, but, it, so, but it's taken like six or seven years just to get into court. Right. So, yeah. Right. And that's what... That, why, why does that take so long? Well, when you, when you think about this, you have a facility that's been around for decades going through the discovery process. They had to fight over what was confidential, what was not, mm. what the, the utilities could have access to. Discovery just takes a really long time. Okay. And that's what we thought, of, you know, as we were looking at this and we thought about going into litigation, we mm. filed our case. We, you know, it, it was pending. Our goal was to try to keep these, this pollution out of the river as much as we could, as fast as we could. And so just this last week, Kim Moore's completed that barrier wall. And so within six years, we've seen this go from a facility that was a major contributor to PFAS pollution, mm. go from that to being 
pretty well cleaned up, at least for what's coming off the site. There's still work to be done. Mm. Still, concern, We still have concerns about the site, but for the most part, the, the major pollution controls have been put in place. Okay. So you mentioned that the Cape Fear uh, PUA and Brunswick County are about to have uh, you know, their time in court to recoup costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what else is going on, on on the litigation front out there? So there are several pieces of litigation happening in South Carolina. There are cases over uh, aqueous film-forming foam, the firefighting foam that's been used at military bases and airports. Um, there are other pieces of litigation there. We have a couple of places where uh, sources were investigating further up the Cape Fear. So in the Hall River, we uh, several years ago sent a le- notice letter to the city of Burlington for their PFAS pollution that was going into the the city of Pittsburgh, the town of Pittsburgh's drinking water. So we've been doing some work on that, trying to identify the sources going into their wastewater treatment plant and clean up that pollution as well. Cape Fear Public Utility Authority taking DuPont to court uh, to try to stop them from from uh, washing their hands of responsibility by spinning off facilities and, and these subsidiary companies. Could you mm-hmm. Describe that, uh, you know, what, what that suit is and the significance of that. Sure. So one of the issues that's come up with Kim Wars is, you know, Kim Wars was a spinoff from DuPont. Uh, DuPont re- reorganized itself. They created another company called Corteva. Uh, that's been a focus of litigation here in North Carolina. And then KFair Public Utility Authority has, has sued Kim Wars and, and that group in, in Delaware as well. And uh, the real, the, the issue there is, you know, can you use these corporate restructuring laws to avoid liability? The state of North Carolina filed a case against Kim Wars, DuPont, and Corteva in state court going for natural resources damages. They're kind of damages that only the state can pursue. And part of their basis for that and for keeping DuPont and Corteva in particular in the litigation was that they engaged in this corporate restructuring for the purpose of avoiding liability. That question went up to the North Carolina Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court said unanimously was, this is a a legitimate basis for keeping these entities in the case. North Carolina still has to prove their their case. They have to prove that that the restructuring was for that purpose. But the, the state of North Carolina has at least said, that that's a legitimate basis for keeping these organizations, these companies, in the case. Mm. Could you talk about why PFAS is so challenging for regulators, state regulators, federal regulators? Why is this class of chemicals difficult to tackle? Well, PFAS or forever chemicals are a different kind of um, constituent that we're trying to regulate as state regulators or even as federal regulators. You know, this is a new class of, new to us. Mm. You know, you look at some of the um, types of compounds that we've regulated for many, many, many years, and they tend to break into their constituent elements, become less hazardous over time. We know how to regulate those. The science is there, um, and we've been working with those for a very long time. They're part of our core programs. Um, with PFAS, it was something new. 
Um, not necessarily new in that you know it's been around for a while, but new in terms of the awareness, the understanding of what the impacts and implications are for public health and the mm. environment. And so, as you know, in order to establish regulations, you need a fair amount of scientific research to back that up. Mm. You need to be able to have reference doses and bioaccumulation factors. Um, we have a Secretary of Science Advisory Board that reviews these studies to make sure that we've got the caliber of science we need in order to back up regulations. There are also thousands of of these compounds. And so keeping up with what one of the aspects of our action strategy for PFAS is identifying what are the priority PFAS that we're finding in North Carolina and what do we as state regulators, what actions do we need to take to make sure we're protecting our residents from the contaminants of concern, the ones that we're most likely to find in our waterways, in our drinking water. Um, so that's been, you know, it's been a challenge because it's, it's forging a new path. There was no playbook for this. And so we've really had to invent the playbook as we go along. But I will say we are blessed with having a wonderful scientific community in North Carolina, especially. And so by leaning on our university partners, and we've really strengthened our ties with them recently. Uh, we worked with a, the North Carolina Collaboratory to establish an applied research fellowship program, which at DEQ. So we are actually bringing in folks that are, um, you know, some of the top researchers in their field. And, and, and PFAS, you know, I would put them against anybody worldwide and we're able to bring them into the department to work side by side with us. And it helps us get a better sense of some of the, the cutting edge research that they're doing. And that makes us better as regulators. It also helps them to understand how regulations, what, mm. what information is needed in order to take action on the scientific research that they're doing. Yeah. So it's been a great partnership. Well, I, North Carolina is kind of one of the leading states on PFAS a, a bit by necessity because of the, some of the situations that have happened, including the Cape Fear River. Uh, could you talk a bit more about the actions, the activities that the state has taken to try to tackle this issue, PFAS in water, kind of get ahead of it, better protect health and the environment? Sure. So in June of last year, we released our action strategy for PFAS. As you may recall, um, back uh, the October prior, the EPA had come, Administrator um, Regan came to North Carolina to announce um, EPA's um, PFAS strategic roadmap. And that outlined what EPA was going to do at a federal level to help support the next steps we needed to do um, across the country to address PFAS contamination. And of course, Administrator Regan's experience has been informed by his experience here in North Carolina. Right, yeah. um, and so uh, our action strategy for PFAS really was meant to be complementary and build off of what EPA had announced mm. and give us actionable steps and show what we need to do as North Carolina regulators having the unique experience that we have. Because as you mentioned, you know, we've become national leaders by necessity on this topic. Right. We didn't set out and say, <laughs> you know what, we think we're just going to tackle this out of the goodness of our hearts. We actually, we have a PFAS manufacturer in our state. Mm. And in fact, we work very closely with other states who are in similar situations and we learn from one another um, because there's a lot of, of learning that needs to occur as we're, you know, for example, North Carolina has been a leader in looking at air deposition. Mm. You know, we've learned, you know, we've got um, homes that are at 18 miles and counting upwind of the Comores facility that have levels of contamination in their groundwater high enough to qualify them for, for um, treatment mm. through the consent order. Um, and you, you know, a lot of research has had to go into measuring that and figuring out how it's transported throughout the environment. And so North Carolina has been a leader. So research, the three pillars of our plan are research, regulate, and remediate. So we've talked a lot about the research so far, whether it's working with the scientific community and the university researchers and our own um, experts that have really honed their skills in, in working with 
Kimor, the Comorse uh, facility. And didn't you just like dedicate a lab? Uh, we just dedicated have, have a new lab. lab. Yeah. Yeah, that was exciting. The Reedy Creek lab um, has been in, in just bad need of renovation for mm. quite some time. And when PFAS came along, of course, that wasn't something that we had planned for, you know, at this point, um, I think it was the 80s that that lab was built. Um, so that was quite a while ago, 40 years ago, we didn't anticipate PFAS at that point. So we were mm. kind of squeezed into different parts of the lab uh, to be able to address our PFAS testing needs. And so this is giving us a dedicated space mm. to work um, where it can be all contained. It's got you know, the latest, greatest technology to make sure that we can do the job that we need to do as scientific experts as well to, to make sure that we're able to do the testing that we need to be able to do. Yeah. But so research regulates, so we need to make sure that we're identifying. There's a lot of detective work that goes on. Mm. It's figuring out which industries are most likely to have PFAS as a part of their process, whether it's an input to the process or whether it's created as a byproduct through the process, you know, making sure that we understand where we're most likely to find it. And also the testing that we're doing. So we had already prepared for the federal drinking water standards. When EPA, actually, again, in North Carolina, there's a common theme here. That's right. Announced their um, updated health advisory levels. Um, they had the four parts per trillion as a lower detectable limit that they were looking at. So we then went through the 2019 collaboratory data of the municipal and county systems and said, okay, who's test who was showing that they were testing at four parts per trillion and above? And we went and retested those systems once a month for three months. That's a, the, the standard of seeing, making sure we don't have anomalies, that we're getting a good, um, a good representative sample of each of those systems. And so we were already working to prepare. And of course, EPA came out with their proposed drinking water standard at four, four parts per trillion. Um, so we knew which systems from the larger systems were going to have an impact uh, potentially and need to look at treatment options. The ones that we are working on now are the smaller systems. So in order to qualify, I don't need to tell you, but <laughs> as a public water system, it's 15 connections or greater. Yeah. And so Which is pretty small. It's, it's pretty very small. It's yeah. very small, but yeah. it can include sensitive populations like sure. schools or daycare centers, um, you know, mobile home communities. So we are identifying, we identified 655 of those mm. that we are going through and doing testing ourselves to get a better handle on where we might have issues and where folks might need to come into compliance with those proposed um, MCLs once they take effect. Because, mm. you know, there's a three-year time horizon once they're approved um, until they, um, they go into effect in right. terms of um, being able to, um, you know, have to comply. Comply, sure. Um, so we are, that's going to give us a better picture of what the groundwater contamination may be throughout the state. Mm. We also have to think about things like AFFF and contamination from firefighting foam. Um, we certainly are seeing instances of that so far. You know, one example of that is in Maysville in Jones County, which is where the administrator came to announce the um, additional funding. North Carolina got $61.7 million for um, underserved rural disadvantaged communities to deal with PFAS contamination. That town had to spend $1.2 million on a granular activated carbon system. Mm. Um, and they were temporarily moving over to Jones County water to be able to, in the meantime, so that they could, because they had very high levels and it suspected that it was AFFF in that situation. So we're going to use the knowledge that we've gathered through the Comorse um, facility and really make sure that we're looking statewide because we know that this is bigger than one compound or one company uh, and, and look to make sure that we're ready for that federal drinking water standard, that we're remediating. So that was the third pillar of the plan, remediating what's already out there 
um, it, which is, you know, again, knowing what you're dealing with, stopping the bleeding and cleaning um, up and cleaning, cleaning up. up. The mess. Yeah. In some ways, it seems like the tide's turning a little bit. There's a lot of attention on PFAS. Uh, there's a lot more resources. There's, you know, EPA's drinking water mm -hmm. regulations coming down. Um, just curious as to kind of how you would assess where things stand. We're certainly making progress. Uh, so I think we've gone from some of the early days and the early litigation, the question was, are these chemicals even regulated? Mm. Now it's clearly established that they're regulated. We have a case down in Lumberton in the Eastern District of North Carolina where that was a question. The, the, the defendant there tried to get rid of our case, arguing that these were just not even regulated. And so several courts now have gone on record saying that, you know, PFAS are covered by the Clean Water Act and, and the, the liability that comes from that is there, it's real, it exists. And that's, that's been a big motivator for a lot of PFAS manufacturers, PFAS users. What we've seen in some of our work is that now as, uh, when, when the threat of litigation becomes apparent, uh, industry would rather find a way out of it. Mm -hmm. And so what, we're, what we've seen uh, in North Georgia, we've had some PFAS, done some PFAS work where rather than go into litigation, the, the, in, the manufacturers there are moving away from using PFAS. Mm. So we certainly are building momentum, uh, and we're seeing that in, in North Carolina, in the South, but also across the country, that, that momentum is not, uh, uh, we, we can't stop there. We have, to, we have to continue to see it through. Uh, we don't want it to be like the tide where it ebbs and flows, where it goes back and forth. We right. want to continue making, making forward progress. Right now, there's a lot of pressure on uh, PFAS manufacturer, PFAS users to not only identify their sources uh, of PFAS, identify where in their process they're using it, how it's getting out, but also to look for other alternatives. Mm. One of the other uh, areas I'm curious about is as, you know, legislative bodies, state legislatures, federal, you know, Congress, look to adjust laws, make laws addressing PFAS. Um, what are, the, what are the challenges or the pitfalls or the, the things that are happening there that could make those effective or not, especially? So I think one of the challenges here is that, you know, when you have someone like, you know, a Chemours, a 3M, a DuPont, a major manufacturer that has been recklessly handling these chemicals over the years, they're an easy target, mm. uh, you know, and they don't get a lot of sympathy in, in, Congress, in Congress or in the legislature. A lot of these chemicals are also coming through wastewater treatment plants. Mm -hmm. Many wastewater treatment plants, they're, they're all designed to treat domestic sewage. A lot of them also take in industrial waste. Mm -hmm. And because these chemicals are dangerous at such low levels, one source in a wastewater treatment plant that's, that's putting in maybe 10, 20, 30, 40,000 gallons a day can contaminate an entire wastewater treatment plant that is discharging 5, 10 million gallons a day of wastewater. And so wastewater treatment plants are a critically important source if we're going to get a handle on PFAS pollution. We're seeing that here in central North Carolina where the town of Pittsburgh there has PFAS in their drinking water. People in Pittsburgh, their blood has been tested and they have uh, blood levels of PFAS that are two to four times the national average. Mm. That's not from a Chemours, it's not from a 3M, it's not from DuPont, it's from wastewater treatment plants. Yeah. And the reason that matters is because what we see is that wastewater treatment plants are more sympathetic when they go into a legislature or, or to Congress. 
And a lot of the push right now to avoid PFAS liability is being driven by wastewater treatment plants. The problem is that for those people in Pittsburgh, the PFAS in their blood is not any less harmful because mm. it came from a wastewater treatment plant than if it came from Kimors. So we have to, if we are going to address this problem, and we have to address this problem, we have to look at every source and hold each source accountable. You mentioned, uh, you know, learning from other places and other places learning from you. I'm really curious in your two years in this role, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you reflect on it, some of the lessons you've learned, um, you know, as a regulator with PFAS, obviously a lot, but what are some of the things that really jumped, jump out at you when you, when you think about that? Well, I will just say to start, you know, I do learn so much from my counterparts in other states, mm. and we do enjoy that information sharing. Our team regularly meets with other states. I was wondering, because I know you're all very busy, and if you have time for that type of, you know, networking, if you will. Yeah, the Environmental Council of States is our peer association, and mm. I'm very active there, and it's, um, it's a, it provides a great forum for us to regularly communicate um, on issues of concern to all of us. You know, with PFAS being, I would say, one of the top issues on all of our minds. A lot of your colleagues knocking on the North Carolina door. And, and saying, us knocking Help. on other people's doors, too. Yeah. I mean, it's we all have different areas of expertise that we've developed by necessity. Mm. And mm. so whether it's looking at biosolids or looking at um, air deposition or looking at um, you know, evaluating groundwater and um, a, a, working on private wells. So for example, uh, one thing I'm very proud of is this, this past week, we um, unveiled a new pilot program using the Bernard Allen Drinking Water Fund to help private well owners because a lot of what other states are struggling with this too is we don't have resources beyond Comores mm. to help private well owners who are impacted by high levels of PFAS contamination. Mm. And so having a system where we can, it's income tested, um, so um, it's a sliding scale. We don't have a ton of funding, so we're gonna do it as we have funds available. And we're hoping that maybe with the General Assembly budget coming out hopefully soon, um, perhaps we'll get some additional funding for this too. But we are gonna use what funds we have to help uh, families who may have struggled to afford PFAS testing that we know are in areas that have potential problems. And then also, instead of um, having Band-Aid solutions, look at filtration. Um, and helping those families with filtration as well. So I'm very proud of the work our team has done there. But it's things like that where we each develop different programs or different methods. And, you know, every state's different. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I'll start out by saying we all have to do what's, what works in our states, respectively. Hmm. Um, you know, our ecology is different. There's a lot, you know, our laws are different. Um, that we are able to share best practices. We say imitation is a serious form of flattery. Sure. Um, so that's been one area of learning. The other area of learning here has just been... Um, the amount of scientific expertise that our agency has and needs to have. And so, um, you know, one of the items in the governor's budget this year is 24 additional positions for PFAS. Mm -hmm. That may sound like a lot, but what I'm hoping that folks are going to realize is that this is not some kind of passing fad. This is not something that is a blip in the radar. This is something that's here to stay. And so while we have robust programs built up in other areas, PFAS is a program that we've had to build up. And instead of borrowing people, from different areas and having an emergency response type attitude, we've got to look at this for what it is, which is it's here. We're going to have to work on it. We're going to have to build up a specific body of expertise. And we've already done that in a lot of ways. And we need to continue doing that to make sure that we're doing the very best work and making the very best decisions that we can. So um, the House budget included the 24 positions. Um, the Senate did not, but we are hopeful. Uh, so we will uh, stay tuned on whether or not we're able to make that transition. Well, the financial piece is a whole other challenge for a regulator, right? You've, you've got the laws and so forth to navigate, but you've got to figure out how to fund 
fund that's the right. work, fund the research, fund the remediation, and, and that's definitely a big piece with PFAS. But Especially when we're an agency that has not traditionally had a whole lot of funding to work with to start with. Yeah. yeah. Through this five, six-year journey here where you've really been focused on Camores, the Cape Fear, doing all your other work too, what have you learned? What are some of the key lessons and advice then that you'd have for communities around the country that are looking at how they respond, you know, especially from a, a litigation standpoint? So I think from a litigation standpoint, you know, the key is to look at what you have. You know, I think understandably when, when news of PFAS broke, a lot of people have looked to like what new laws, what new regulations do we have? That's good. And, and I think the laws can always be improved. But I think one of the things people should look at is what tools do we already have? Mm. You know, the, the cleanup at Kimores was all based on existing law, existing groundwater standards, existing Clean Water Act law. We didn't have to have any new laws to clean up this facility. All we had to have was the, was the, the public pressure mm. and the demand. So these wastewater treatment plants, they have existing tools to stop PFAS from coming into their system. The only thing that's lacking is the motivation. And so what people should do is, yes, look for new, look, look to see if there are opportunities to pass new laws, but really look at what you have, look to build pressure on your state environmental agencies, your legislators, your, the federal government to use the tools we have to clean up this pollution because we can go get really, we, we can get a long way down the road hmm. to solving this crisis using the tools we have. and. You know, if we use the Clean Water Act the way it was intended to eliminate pollution altogether, then in 10 years, we're not going to be talking about the next chemical, mm -hmm. the next version of Gen X or the next, you know, the next PFAS-like chemical, because if we're stopping pollution from going in, we, it's not going to be there. Mm -hmm. And we won't be playing this, this constant game of catch-up with the, the chemical industry's chemists. That, that, that is, a, that mm. is a, a, a battle we're bound to lose. But if we use the law the way it's written, then we can, we can avoid it altogether. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And thanks to the sponsors, Black & Veatch, PFASCOMS.com, and Ultra. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. You're in the Waterloop. <laughs>